Good morning, Bridgeway. How's everyone doing? And happy uh, Dada Day to everyone. And what better gift to get your father or your grandfather than a trip to Israel? Right? Like, uh, you know, as you guys know, we lead trips to Israel here at Bridgeway. I'm one of the people that leads those tours, and we're actually opening up another one for May 2018. And in all seriousness, it is a great gift that you can get someone because it drastically affects how you read scripture. And I know we know that, but until you go and you watch the words go from black and white to living color, it just is kind of a, yeah, I know, but I don't know. And so I do want to personally invite you to come to Israel with us. Come, and we would love to have 35, 40 of you go on this trip as a special personal invite to come with us to go see the places where Jesus taught, to come and see the places where the history of Israel occurred, and to see why that matters to how you live now. Amen? Amen. So that's my little commercial. And uh, so we're going to continue in the Purpose Proclamation Project, which is the series we've been going through here at Bridgeway through the book of Ezra. And we're in part six of that series. And so we're going to be going through Ezra chapter six, verses one to 15 today. And uh, if you have your bulletin, there's a fill in the blank on there that we're going to start with to kind of help you get acclimated to what we're going to talk about. And this is how the fill in the blank goes. God... You probably expected that one, maybe Jesus. God can move through prophets and then put dot, dot, dot and paperwork. God can move through prophets and paperwork. And that's what we're going to kind of unpack here over this morning. And so kind of to remind you of where and when we are in the Bible, we're going to just remind ourselves what the book of Ezra lies within, because it references a time after Israel, specifically the people of Judah, went into exile and then returned from exile. They'd been taken into captivity in Babylon, and then Cyrus the Great showed up, a Persian leader, and he released all the captives, anybody that was a slave in Babylon to remove, to return to their homelands and rebuild their places of worship. And so they call this book, the book of Ezra, a post-exilic book. It means after the exile. And this is the end of Israel's meta-narrative. And if you've never heard that term, a meta-narrative is the thread that you get from the very beginning in the book of Genesis that goes all the way through the stories and the timeline within Israel and goes into the time of Christ all the way to the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. And it's the thread of what God is doing and why. And so this is the end of the meta-narrative in the Old Testament right before Jesus Christ. Why is that significant? We have to understand what the people of this time were thinking because they were learning and they were understanding that punishment and exile was not the end of their story. Now, if you think about it, they started in Exodus, in slavery. God released them in powerful ways, took them into the promised land, put his presence among them in the tabernacle and in the temple. But then all that had been taken away in punishment and they were taken into exile. And when it seemed like all was lost and slavery was again their defining story, God showed up. God showed up in his authority and his purpose again. And they knew that was going to happen because of what Deuteronomy chapter 30 said. We don't have time to read it, but if you read Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 5, you see a a prophecy, a fulfillment that would happen because God knew they would go into exile. And he tells them, if you return to me with all your heart, I'm going to return you to the promised land and reaccomplish the purpose that I've already, already had. And so 
the story of Exodus and the exile became two bookends for the people. And now they were pioneering a new era of faith and of hope and of trust of what God had been doing and promising through the rest of his word. And so we have to return to his purpose and understand the same thing that the people of Israel were understanding. A lot of us don't realize, or or we maybe don't catch the connection that uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which is another way of talking about the Old Testament, the way that they gathered the books of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, is it was all one scroll. The book of Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah were scrolls that they, con- they considered put together because they believed that they had a common author that was kind of making a thread go through the end of Chronicles into Ezra and into Nehemiah, right? Now, because of that, those three books have this task of being a historical ideology. And what that means is that they were tracking history, but they were tracking history, how they believed and wanted God to unfold it according to what his spirit was revealing. And so the things that they were looking for was this, they wanted to see the temple restored. Prophets had been talking about it while they were in exile, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah is bringing it up here. 31 times in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, it talks about their purpose in rebuilding the temple. 31 times. It's trying to get their attention. They also wanted to see the city of Jerusalem restored. They wanted to see the kingship restored, where one from the line of David, a righteous branch, would sit on the throne again and rule their people in righteousness and holiness. And they also wanted to see reform happen. And so as you're reading the book of Ezra, the opposition, the hurdles, and these empire-level decision-making pieces keep the reader centered on whether or not this promise and this purpose would be accomplished. And so in the book of Ezra, we've been seeing how Ezra emphasizes the opposition. And we've been talking through that. Pastor Lance, Pastor Parnell, they've been talking about the external opposition that comes our way and what we're supposed to do with that. We're also going to be talking briefly today about What's the other angle that the prophets give us? Because during this time, Haggai and Zechariah preach in the passages that we're going to be talking about. But we need to specifically jump backwards for a second. We have to go back to last week and kind of review what Pastor Parnell talked about in chapters 4 to 5 a little bit. Because they kind of give us the context for where we get at today with chapter 6. So um, you can turn to chapter 5, but you don't have to be reading along because I'm going to kind of give a recap of it. But... Chapters 4 and 5 had shown us a pattern of opposition to God's work of repurposing. And you have to remember that just because God was returning the people, just because God was rebuilding, just because God was repurposing, did not mean that there was going to be absolutely no challenge. Israel still needed to grow, just like we do. They still needed to mature, and they still needed to, to be changed at a heart level. In the book of Deuteronomy, God would envision it as the people had to circumcise their hearts is what he tells them. He tells them that in the first part of Deuteronomy and then later in Deuteronomy and then in the prophets, he starts saying, you can't do that. I'm going to circumcise your hearts. I'm the only person that can change you from the inside out. And so during this opposition, during this first aspect of return, they're still being reformed. They're still learning what it means to repent. And the 70 years of exile are coming to completion. It hasn't been completed yet. There was a promise that after 70 years they would return. Well, that return had already started happening, but it had not come to its completion or fruition because the people, even though they were back in the land, still needed to be back with their priorities and their hearts in the right place. Amen? 
So what's going on here is over the last few weeks, we've been talking about these themes of when the opposition comes, we cannot give up. We do not give up. We stand strong and we boldly obey God, believing in what his purposes are. Israel had returned to the promised land, but they were still dealing with the realities of the world around them. They had to depend on the graces of foreign kings, which was a two-edged sword. Because the kings would give these decrees that would hinder as well as they would help. And the Persian system could work against the Jews, as we saw in Ezra's chapter 4 and 5. And it can easily work in their favor, as we saw with Cyrus the Great in Ezra chapter 1. And what we're going to read here with Darius in chapters 5 and 6. And we're going to see the same pattern show up in Nehemiah again as well. I, I need to set you a little bit historically of where we are. And this is where I nerded up a little bit. And this is where we're like, Matt, I don't want to know dates. I don't care it matters, though, because you need to see the timeline that's happening to understand what we're talking about. So 538, Cyrus the Great takes over the Babylonian Empire. It's now a Persian Empire, and he releases all the captives back. That allows the Jewish people to go back. They go in different waves. 536, they're all back, and they start rebuilding the foundations of the temple and also the altar. Awesome times. They're on the track of where they should go. 536. Six, opposition comes. And they're told to shut down the work. They can't do it anymore. 16 years go by. 16 years. Okay? If you have a 16-year-old, you know that's a very long time. It's a trying very long time. 16 years go by, and no one is doing anything. And we all assume it's only because of the opposition that came from the Persian Empire. But we're going to see that it's even more than that. 16 years go by, and then in 520... Haggai and Zechariah show up on the scene, prophets of the Lord, speaking God's word. They stir the people up and they start building the temple again. And so this is where we, we kind of pick up in chapter five because the people are rebuilding the temple and they technically have no right to be rebuilding the temple according to the Persian court. But Haggai and Zechariah have stirred them up. And so last week, Parnell talked about how Tatanai, the governor of that province of the area where Palestine, Israel is, in 5, 6 to 17, he kind of puts together this letter that he's going to send to the new king, because remember, 16 years have gone by, the new king that is now over the Persian Empire, and he's talking to them about the political unrest and what he's seen happen in Israel. And so he sends someone to the Persian capital to make sure that this building is approved. Right? Now, one of the things I like in that passage is that the whole time that that's going on, it tells you that the people of Israel kept working on the temple, stirred by the Spirit of God, the Haggai chapter 1 says. And Ezra 5.5 5 says, The eye of their God was on them, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned concerning it. So because of what the Spirit had set in their hearts, they plugged forward. This is not staying in my ear. This plugged forward so that they would keep working even when the possible resistance and opposition was going to come again. And they kept working diligently on this. Now, you have to kind of understand something, and they're going to put a map up here on the screen so that we can kind of paint the picture here for you. But you have to understand that when Tatanai sends this message, he sends it quite a far distance. So if you see the Mediterranean right here, and the only city you see marked on there is Tyre, that's right where Israel is, just south of that. And from Jerusalem, they send a message east towards the Babylonian capital. So if you go see where the Persian Gulf is, and you'll see a dot that has Babylon, right? The city of Babylon, and to the right of it is the citadel of Susa, right? These are two of the palaces that Darius is now located. It's roughly 
in a roundabout way that they would have had to have gone 900 miles that they have to send this message. You're going to see in the passage we read that they have to go up north from Susa to Ekbatana to go get more information about whether or not this is accurate. So we're dealing with about 1140 miles of distance to get the information that they need. And this is where you have to understand some unique things about what Darius the Great brought into the empire. Because a lot of us, we look back in history and most of us kind of stop at Rome. And so we attribute everything amazing that happened to the Roman period, right? And so a lot of us will talk about the Roman roads and we'll talk about the Roman roads were built off of what Darius the Great established with the roads that he established in the Persian Empire. And so he was actually one of the first guys to start paving roads, putting things out there, and he started sending up postal stations so that he could send couriers with messages. And rather than them having to ride for a day and then their horse and them are tired and they have to take a rest, every 15 miles a courier could stop, get a fresh horse, and keep going. And it allowed them to travel 240 miles in one day. Whereas a a regular cart going along the road that would not change out would take three months. So he automatically started speeding up the system. He was also the one that established a term for their couriers where he would say, whether whether rain or snow or heat. Does that sound familiar? I was like, we stole that. We stole it from Darius and his couriers. And so it was also during that period that the inventors in the Persian Empire created horseshoes. And so that allowed the horses to move much faster and much quicker. So that's just nerding out information. But I'm just trying to help you understand that when Tatanai sends that message, this is not going to take years to get back. It's going to take weeks, perhaps months, once they're trying to look for the materials, that this is them working their way through trying to get the information. And Tatanai sends this message, if you look in chapter 5. Verse 3 is really the question that he wants answered. He says, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure. He's asking the people of Israel. And then he's telling Darius, we also ask for the names of their leaders that we might write down their names and you might have that information, (laughs) right? And he tells them, I went to the province of Judah, verse six, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. And he asked the people, who gave you the permission? And in verses 11 to 16, the people of Israel, the exiles that had returned, say this, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we are building, rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel, Solomon, built and finished. But because of our fathers, who had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this is the house that God, this is the house of God should be rebuilt. And he goes on to talk about the gold and the silver vessels that were in the temple need to be restored and how Sheshbazar laid the foundations and they're continually building it and it is not yet finished. So that's the message that he sends out to Darius about what he's looking into and what the people said. Let's look at our text, um, chapter six, verses one to five. Uh, it's page 392 in the Bibles and the seats that you're at. It's probably a different page in your own Bible. Although what's funny is it's a, it's the same page in my Bible and I have a different Bible. Isn't that creepy? (laughs) It's Jesus, but it's still weird. So, all right, Ezra chapter six, it says, then Darius, the king made a decree and a search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. 
And in Ekbatana, which I showed you guys on the map, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And so they find that message and they're like, this is amazing, right? The message comes back that there is record of it. And you have to remember for the people of Israel, they are tracking through a repetition of this, right? Because if you were to go back to Second Chronicles 36, 23 to 24, it gives that account of Cyrus releasing the people back to the land and allowing them to go and build the house at Jerusalem. If you read the beginning of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it recounts that same thing again, almost verbatim, and then adds a little bit more about how they're going to build the house at Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 3 references that. And each of those is shorter than this account we just read from Darius, but that's because it's showing the actual proclamation or decree that came to the exiles when the news was brought to them. So it was somebody, uh, uh, a message bearer coming and saying, here's the news that comes from the king of the empire. You can go home and you can rebuild. And so it talks about Yahweh's name and it keeps it simplified. Darius is giving us the more formal and legal account that they actually recorded. But if you're someone that's skeptical of the authority and the historicity of the scripture, then there's also this. They're going to put up another image here. There was an archaeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder, right? The Cyrus Cylinder was this Persian clay artifact that they found built and kind of stored in one of the walls in Babylon, right? And on it is an account of when Cyrus the Great took over the Persian Empire. And so it starts by talking about how he came in and by the power of all the gods, he took over the empire according to what was supposed to happen. And then it goes on and talks about how he encouraged all the slaves and all the people who had been brought into Babylon as exiles to return to their homelands and rebuild their places of worship. So this is a non-biblical account of the exact same thing that we read in Chronicles, that we read in Ezra 1, that we read in Ezra 4, and that we just read Darius accounting in Ezra 6. The same thing being brought out. And, and I love it because it's, it's showing that this was real. This is real history that happened. This is not something that the Jews fabricated. This is not something that the Christians hold on to that doesn't have validity. This is something that truly happened. And so they, they read, they, this rediscovered account from Darius is reflecting a royal recognition of a new kingdom, or at least a new leader, of what the people of Israel already knew to be true. But they needed to hear it repeated. Because we know how affirming it is when God gives us a repeat of his providence and his guidance, not only in our lives, but in what's going to fulfill his kingdom purposes. We need that affirmation and that repeat. Let me share with you a little bit of a personal story for me. Um, I, I've been a pastor in a lot of different areas, and one of the places I worked was I worked at a church in New Zealand from 2005 to 2008 in Christchurch, New Zealand. 
beautiful place, amazing church. Um, it was so rich of community of what we experienced. But sadly, my wife and I had to return because of a lot of painful things that happened in our church politics that kind of pushed us out. And so we came back. We were in Sacramento for about a month, and then I took a job at Azusa Pacific University down in Southern California. Just think about that for a second. New Zealand to L.A. Hobbiton to Mordor. Thank you for those of you guys that understand, right? So we moved down there, and it was this time where I was feeling not only the external opposition, the attack that I felt when I was in New Zealand, But I was feeling that continuing even while we were in Southern California. I was feeling that weighing on my spirit and wearing me down and ruining me. And I got to a point in March of 2010 where I was ready to give up. And I'm going to read you an email that I sent. Because I picked 12 of my friends in New Zealand, Canada, and the U.S. And I wrote this to them. Life at home is routine, but I have felt nothing but a sense of being scattered, hopeless, and out of steam. I'm not sure anymore what I should be doing. I've spent nearly three weeks now looking at my life and my vocation and my calling from varying angles. I try to pray, but I end up getting silent and distracted. Feel familiar? I read the word, but it seems unable, but I seem unable to sense the application of it for me currently. As I've stirred for some many restless, sleepless, and exhausted hours, I sense that my vocational full-time ministry is ripped at the seams. I don't have confidence when I speak. Or the certainty anymore. I feel like I go through the motions, persisting in the little experience I've had from the past. I worry heaps and I am anxious about many things. I'm intimidated even by the simplest of students or pastors I work with, feeling incapable of mentoring or assisting them because I feel like they do ministry or their schooling or their life much better than I ever did or will. I think I realize that the small tear from New Zealand. And the continual challenges here have just continued to rip wider and wider and wider so that this garment is no longer able to function as it has or was intended to. Of course, this is extremely scary and insecure. And those friends did the right thing. They contacted me. They prayed for me. um, They tried to encourage me and help me process. But it's what God did to give me that repetitive affirmation of what his guidance and his control was that ended up opening up my world again. Because what happened is, that was March 2010, May 2010, one of the churches we were attending called Charter Oak Lighthouse asked me to help lead part-time their college ministry. Hume Lake Christian Camps asked me to come down and speak at their Hume San Diego camp as a missionary speaker. A, A Chinese American church in Roland Heights asked me to come and teach their English-speaking side of the church for a couple weeks. A church in Atwater asked me to... Atwater. Atwater. No, just kidding. They, they asked me to come and uh, do a cross-cultural ministry institute for their church. And then I got an email from a pastor up in Sacramento from Bridgeway dialoguing with me about coming to work at Bridgeway Christian Church. And, and so... And so... Thank you. Um... And so I'm just trying to show you, like, I was in a spot where the opposition and the internal depression and anxiety and frustration, all of that left me wondering what was going to happen, just like the people in the exile as they're returning felt. But then God started giving those repeated affirmations, like we just saw with the Cyrus Cylinder, and we saw in Ezra, and we saw in Chronicles, and we're seeing with Darius. 
And those things remind us. And it tells me, not only in my personal story, but in this story, how affirming it is when God repeats his providence and says, no, I have a purpose and I have a plan and I'm still going to keep you on that track. And so let's get back to the text because we can talk about me, but I'm boring. The text is better. Um, And and perhaps you're looking at the text and you're thinking kind of like how I am, that how is Darius going to act on a memo from a previous administration? Right? Just think about politics in general. I can't really think of many political leaders that would look at something that was from 15 to 20 years earlier and go, yeah, I like that. Let's keep it. Most leaders are going to want to change it and make it their own. But Darius keeps with the tradition of Persian policy and he honors the decision of the past. Now, part of that makes sense. He's only been leader for two years and you should read his history on how he became a leader. And there's political unrest somewhat in the Persian empire. And so he wants to keep everyone happy. So very conveniently, he allows them to keep building this. So let's keep reading verses six to 12. It says, now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river. Can we just acknowledge I'm reading a lot of hard names? Just want to say, he says to these guys, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. Yes, thank you. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make the decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Yeah, and you read it and you're like, yes, that's what we're waiting for, to see like a leader actually support the work of God. And automatically, you should be going in your mind back to chapter 4 of Ezra, because this is an opposite response to the leader that's represented in the the chapter of chapter 4. Because in that instance, they send a letter to the leader, and it's, it's named Artaxerxes, and there's some debate on who that is, because technically he's later in history and yada yada, right? But Artaxerxes responds back and says, no, they cannot build the temple. Shut the work down. They can't do this. And so this is now a total flip and it's a total opposite reaction. And maybe we are supposed to realize as the readers, along with the people that experience this, that just because something was tried once and it brought opposition does not mean the next time God won't turn it to his favor. I think a lot of times we hold back because we go, no, 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 that didn't work last time. I'm not going to try that. I'm not going to take the risk. But that was then. God can work differently each time. And so when we go forward in boldness and in confidence, we look on how we can obey God and follow his priorities. Right? And one of the things I like to remind people is that in Ezra chapter 4, the people spiritually were not in a good place. They had come back. They were excited about building the temple. But that excitement started dying off. And they started getting into their routines. And they started worrying about their own survival. Back then, they they spiritually weren't great. great. But 
by this time, Haggai and Zechariah have shown up and, and the Lord by his spirit had stirred the people so that they could focus on this. And so when we read Darius saying these things like stay away and do not interfere, it's supposed to show us the gravity of what God is doing in this new season. Because can you imagine hearing this for the first time and the joy and the amen? I mean, you guys had the response. You were like giddy just as we were sharing it. Can you imagine the people who are building and who have experienced that direct opposition hearing this for the first time? It would have been as if when we moved into this property of the federal government coming to the city of Roseville and the inspectors and saying, stay away from the church building site. You don't have to inspect it. Yes! Oh, we would have saved so much money and time. And then if they would have said, council, take note, anything the church wants to build, even a zip line from the tower to the building, let <laughs> youth ministry, let them build. Furthermore, take $8 million out of the city's account and give it to the elders of the church and provide the congregation with anything they need to worship. Like, it's that type of experience that we look at that and we go, that would never happen. And yet in this story, that's what happened. Now, one nuance that we should realize as well is that when Darius is responding and giving all these ways that, uh, that they're going to be able to worship and have their provision, he has this knowledge of the Jewish worship that you go, as a new Persian king, you shouldn't know anything about this. And this is where you have to remember another piece of history. The person that most likely is influencing a lot of the organization of this book is Ezra, the actual Ezra, Ezra, who's a scribe in the Persian Empire, which means he's one of the guys that's sitting in Darius's household, writing notes, doing paperwork, right? And so when this all comes up, I believe, and I think it's probable that Ezra was explaining to Darius how the Jewish people worshiped, explaining their story and filling in the gaps so that this message could come back. Probably the biggest thing that highlights that is the fact that it says the God who caused his name to dwell there. Now we might re read that and go, oh, that's a gloss. No, that's actually a reference that comes up in Deuteronomy and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So that's a term that would have been familiar to the Jewish people. But for a new Persian emperor, he would have had to have heard that from someone else. And so what I like about just what we're reading here is that you're seeing the external opponents defeated not by physical force, not by supernatural intervention, but through dialogue, through effective letter writing and archival research. Any PhD people? Can you get an amen? Because that's most of your life, right? It's like letter writing, dialogue, and archival research. And there's irony in that. But what I like is they allow the opposition to raise the alarm and it, and it gives fresh motivation and it gives fresh courage and it gives fresh faith and it releases this new flow of purpose and material. And that's where we're going to go into the last couple verses here. And then we're going to add on a little piece from the book of Haggai. Because in verse 13, it tells us about how the temple finishes. It says, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bozani, and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. So it tells you that Darius gives that message and these governors who are raising the opposition automatically start doing this with all diligence. And it says that the elders built and were prospered. And this is where I want you to notice a line though in here. 
It says that they, they built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. They were there with the people supporting them. And so this is where I want you to understand for a second. You have the book of Ezra, which is a historical ideology, right? Painting the picture of what's happening, talking about the opposition, and talking about the hope of what they would bring. The prophets, on the other hand, would often speak to and record their emotional and conscience appeal to the people. And so we can't read just the book of Ezra, especially these chapters, unless we look at what Haggai and Zechariah wrote. And that's where I want to focus in for a second on what Haggai specifically wrote in chapter 1. And the reason I'm doing this is because we have to zoom out again to what Pastor Lance and Parnell and we've been talking about in here, which is that there's three ways that we experience um, spiritual attack. You have the world system that presses in on us and tries to live in resistance to the Lord. You have Satan and his powers who work trying to deceive and trying to lure us. But there's also spiritual attack and opposition that comes from within. Our flesh fights against our spirit. Our flesh fights against what God is trying to do. And so you're going to see that although we've been watching opposition coming from the outside, God uses Haggai to propel the people to think about what's going on on the inside. Because if you remember the history timeline, 538, they get a chance to return back to the promised land from exile. 536, they're building the temple foundations. Opposition comes, and now 16 years have gone by. 16 years. Haggai tells us why it took so long. And he says it's not just because of the opposition. It's because of the spiritual attack happening from within. And so 520, he comes in speaking about this. And he's trying to help them understand that sometimes God has put everything in place. And he's even had the key rulers in our world put things in place. And he's had our leaders get us primed and prepped. And he's saying, now it's your turn to leap forward into the purpose and the calling of what God has called you to do. And what he's going to bring up is this reality that all of us have to know, which is that we are human and man is made of dust and dust tends to settle. We get into a routine, we get comfortable, and when that happens, a lot of bad stuff happens. And so what happens is, like the people of Israel, we find ourselves blissfully content in safe spots of our faith and living. And when that happens, that's wrong. We become satisfied with going in the same circles week after week, year after year, and we become used to standing still. And when that happens, that's wrong. We begin permitting things in our life that we know should not be allowed, and our faith no longer jars how we live, how we behave, how we stand out. And when that happens, that's wrong. We start thinking that things cannot or will not change and cannot or need not be improved. And we say that again and again in our mind. And when that happens, that's wrong. And so Haggai comes in trying to get people to realize that to live wisely and passionately for the Lord is difficult because we often don't realize the choice is not between the bad and the good, but between the good and the best. There's a lot of us in the church that we're doing good, but we're not doing the best. And I'm not talking about quality. I'm talking about spirituality. Because I'm not talking about how well our lives are organized. I'm not talking about how well um, we deal with different things. I'm talking about where our spiritual priorities are. And so Haggai comes in and he addresses this. The people return 
um, all this resistance comes up, the excitement dies off, opposition and distraction arises, and Haggai comes in and gets 15 weeks to get the people moving. That's a hard job. 15 weeks to get people to get out of a rut, to get people out of their focus on their busyness. And so let's read the text really quickly. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read just Haggai 1, 1 to 9 here. And uh, it starts in 1, 1, and it says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the governor, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, or Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what it says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So God's going to use Haggai and he's going to do almost a little bit of a puppet thing where he's going to say, this is what the people say. This is what I say. This is what, and he's trying to do that to display this dialogue that's supposed to be going on. And he says, the people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the people are doing what a lot of us do, which is they're saying, we're just going to wait for a prime time for this to happen. We're going to hesitate in our activity, or we're going to imagine that there'll be a better time when I have more space and less going on that we can grow deeper with God, that we can do this or that for God. And we decide, I'll wait till that time comes. We don't doubt it needs to happen. We're committed to seeing it happen. But like me, you can list the 30 to 50 reasons why you don't have the time to do it. Because we're all busy. I got this going on and my kids are doing this and this just popped up and You guys, we can list the reasons, and we will say the same thing. The time has not yet come. And then verse 4, Haggai brings in this sarcasm, and it's coming from the Lord. And he says, is it time for you to be living in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord is in ruins? Ooh. He's saying, is it right for us to live in our routines in comfort, focused on our own general and specific desires, while our spiritual life or our spiritual context remains in ruins? And needs to be rebuilt. And so Haggai's coming in there with some slap in the face messages. Trying to expose the the excuses. Because he's saying time is not the reason. Because it's very clear that they had the time for their own houses. And God's saying the same thing. He's saying "Don't, don't try to say that we don't have time to focus on the spiritual house. Because we have time. It's what we're doing with the time. And so Haggai is trying to come in to challenge the priorities of the people. Look at verses 5 and verses 7 because he repeats the same thing. He says, give careful thought to your ways, which literally means set your heart towards your road. Think about your circumstances, your experiences, your day-to-day, your week-to-week, every corner of your life, not just church life, every corner. Consider it from God's point of view. What does he intend for you? What does he desire for you? What does God want you to do with his time? Listen to that. His time. What does God want you to do with his money? His money. It's trying to frame our minds to see it from God's ways. And that's what he's challenging them to do. Give careful thought towards their path, towards their road. To think about it. And before God gives them any command to go and build, he asks the people to think about what they're doing with their lives. To stop long enough to evaluate and see where they are at spiritually, not only where they are at personally, but where their family and their spiritual family and their region is at. Look at chapter, uh, verse 6. He gives these different pairs, these five pairs of what we do and the five pairs of what happens. He goes, you're out there and you're planting and you're eating and you're drinking and you're wearing clothing and you're earning, 
But then he shows the opposite. But you're harvesting little. There's not enough. You're not full. You're not warm. There's no money because it all disappears. Does that feel familiar? See, these pairs show how ordinarily, how ordinary things will feel when we're focused on our own interests. And I think a lot of us know what I'm talking about, that you can go and you can go buy your coffee somewhere, hoping that that's going to really give you the boost to the day, but then you still feel the same. It's because you went to Starbucks, but still. (laughs) We go and we buy a new thing of clothing, or we buy a new video game, or we buy a car, even a big purchase or house. And we're like, wow, this is big. This is going to... And within a week or a month, you're just like, things are just as hard. Things are just as out of whack. And we go through that. And he's bringing that up. He's bringing up that feeling. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he goes, Go and build so that I, the Lord, may take pleasure in what you're doing and be honored. And then after giving them that instruction, he then brings up, more of the challenge. Verse 9, he says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with his or her own house. Now, the first time I ever read that, that was a punch in my face because I started realizing that even as a pastor, I could be so busy with my own personal affairs that I can miss the spiritual house right in front of me that my time and my treasure and my talents needed to be focused on. And I'm saying this because I miss it. I know we all miss it, and we need to hear that challenge. So he talks about that because we're so busy with our own house, his house sits in ruins. And that means to literally be dried up and desolate. It doesn't mean that it's a patch of dirt, but he's saying it's yellow patches of grass. Now, to me, I would almost rather, rather, rather have one or the other, right? I would rather have a fully green lawn, which I've never had in my life, than to be honest. Or I would have total dirt. But what I've lived with with most of my life in every country, including New Zealand, which shows you how bad I am with lawns, is patches of grass where there's a little bit of an empty spot, there's a little bit of a yellow spot. And God's going, why would you want that? And when God's saying, I want you to go and put priority and time and focus on it, it's doing that thing where you go out there. And I don't know if you guys remember this, and some of you still might do it, but back in the 50s and the 60s and and the 2000s, people standing out on their lawns with their hose trying to water that one dry spot, right? And it's like always like the guy in his white t-shirt. Like it's putting priority on that one spot to make sure that it's not desolate and it's not dried up. And so when we're talking about this, we're focusing on temple of the Holy Spirit care, right? Because when we talk about this in Haggai, God's calling the people to focus on building and putting care into the temple where his presence resided. But in Christ, in the New Testament, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. He resides in us. 1 Corinthians 6 makes that very clear. 1 Corinthians 3 makes that very clear. We are God's building. And Ephesians 2 tells us we are built together into a spiritual house. So when we're talking about spiritual priority, we're not talking about the church building. We're talking about what's going on in your soul. We're talking about what's going on in your family and what's going on in our spiritual family. Everybody here in this room and in every service. What's going on in our region? Spiritually. And we cannot forsake that and let it fall to ruins. 
And so this challenge, I hope that we can picture ourselves in dialogue with God like the people in in the post-exilic period did. And we can be jostled from our routine and we can fight that very human opposition that tries to make life simply about ourselves. We need to shut our mouths a lot more. We need to look inside and see how we spend our time. Are we too busy? Are there things in ruins? What is happening in God's house? And yes, the verse from Jesus should be ringing through our minds. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. But let's finish up here. Let's go back to Ezra. I like showing that, that kind of dual thing happening because it's not just what we're reading in Ezra that's going on. You have the prophets speaking. But back in Ezra verses 14 and 15, it told, we already read it, but it tells us the elders were building and succeeding, continuing action in what they were doing. And on March 516 BC, the house was finished and was completed. And man, that would have been so nice. If you've ever done a remodel or any building in your home, you put the last piece in, you clean up the last bit of dirt, and you wipe things down, and you go, finally. And then your wife goes, let's do this room, right? <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you get through all that, and, and the house is finished four years after Haggai has come and prompted and pushed the people. And it was started in hard times 16, 20 years earlier, It's gone through ominous investigations, but it's completed. And here's what I think is amazing. And it has to do with where you mark the exile as starting. But Jerusalem and the temple fell and was destroyed in 586. The temple is finished in 516. That's 70 years. That means that it's when the temple is finished and the people are spiritually back in the right priorities that then the exile is truly done. It wasn't just when they came back into the promised land. It was when their hearts and God's presence was the center again. And I like what verse 15 does because it lays out something very powerfully and we're going to finish with this. It tells us that this happened by God's decree. And then by the successive kings with their decrees, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, and then by the elders. But it's trying to show you this reality. It starts with God's command. God's purposes start with what he is saying and with what he is doing and with what his plans are. And then God uses everything around us, even the non-Christian stuff. He uses government. He uses secular organizations to still direct us towards his purposes. And God uses the leaders and the people of the church. But he makes it very clear. I'm at the top. It starts with my, my command. And so to give you guys kind of four points to conclude this, first one, God does show up. You need to hear that again and again. God does show up. And because of that, we don't give up. You stand strong. You live boldly, obeying and surrendering to our God and his purpose for the world. As I was writing that in Pete's coffee, see, it wasn't Starbucks. The the words of a song lyric um, just kept going through my mind. And it actually, um, I kept seeing certain of our high school staff singing it. And I don't know why God gave me that image, but it was um, staff sitting there and singing the lyrics. And I'm not Parnell, so I'm not, I can't sing it to you. But the, you're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. And you keep living by that reality. You are going to show up, and so I'm not going to give up. Because you never are going to let me down, because your commands direct our purposes. 
And when the spirit is stirring us, it's okay if the opposition raises the alarms and makes the threats because God's purpose is what's leading. And we cannot forget, this is the third point, the opposition from within. And I'm going to use a term I don't think we'll all like, the sin of busyness. I haven't called it that, but I feel like it is. The sin of busyness when it's just with our own life, when we miss the priority of God's spiritual house. And then to go back to our fill in the the blank, God works through prophets and paperwork. Never forget that with everything you're doing, it starts with his command, and then God is using everything spiritual and everything ordinary to accomplish those purposes. And we need that repetitive affirmation again and again and again. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray for your revelation and for your truth to come upon these people. God, I pray that you would uh, give us time today when we go and we get a chance to celebrate our dads and our granddads, those who are both present with us and those who are not, whether they're with you, Lord, or they're in another part of the world or the country. God, that as we're doing this, if we're talking about life, God, may your revelation just burst in and just remind us of your purposes and your commands. God, may you show us how to re-rack our spiritual priorities. God, may you show us how to not list all the excuses of our time and why we're too busy to do this or do this or do this. God, I pray that you would give us the practical just ability to sometimes say no to the things that eat up our time. And the ability to say, I'm going to let go of this and not hold it so tightly. But God, we love the reality that you show up again and again and again. And because of that, we never will give up. And so we love you. And we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. If you need prayer, we have the prayer team up here. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about Israel as well. Have a great Father's Day.